You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Welcome to the North Canton Chapel. Everybody doing good? You're like, yeah, I came to second service because they robbed me of an hour of sleep last night. <laughs> Quick straw poll. How many of you are normally like first service people? Oh, yeah. There's only like five of you. I totally embarrassed you now. I'm sorry. Not my intention. Well, way to be here in defiance of the clock, so well done. This is our first week of a five-week series called Solas, and I am really excited. Um, Half of the reason I'm excited is because, like, you're probably wondering what does that word mean. If you've Googled it on your phone or you're taking a guess, this is going to be fun. Half of you are waiting for, like, a solo which is not what's going to happen up here, so keep waiting for that. Um, But no, I am really excited for this series um, for one giant reason. Um, We're about five weeks away from Easter, which is one of the greatest celebrations and parties in the Christian calendar. And as we thought and prayed and and sought God's direction for what we could do to prepare for these next five weeks, um, this, this idea of grounding our faith in some very ancient truths came out. And, and so I'm really excited to see what we can do in these next five weeks together as we open God's word, because here's what I believe. I believe that God has incredible plans for absolutely everybody in this room. And you heard Pastor Micah say that last week, that God is inviting us to participate in his restorative work in this world. And, and you hear that and you go, yes, I believe that God wants to break us and build us and mold us and fill us. I believe that God wants to give you his best, but here's the rub. None of those plans, none of those hopes, and none of those dreams, and that great restorative work, you will not have a place in that unless you are grounded in the truth. And so that's where we're headed the next five weeks, and yes, we are going to get to what the word means in like 30 seconds, so just hang on for that one. This morning is week one of five weeks, and I was telling somebody just a little bit ago, we're only looking at two verses this week, but these two verses are rich with meaning because here's the point. You will never get God's best for you until you get God's word in you. You will never get God's best for you until you get God's word in you. So before we get to these two short but incredible verses. I want to build a frame around this series so you know where we're going. First things first, solas, what does that even mean? So sola is the Latin word for alone, alone. So you can impress your friends or family at dinner. If your friends are intellectual types or doctors, you can go, I know Latin, right? It means alone. So all five of these weeks are something alone. And so here they are up on the screen. I want to show them to you. First week that we're looking at today is scripture alone. Week two is going to be, where are we at? There it is, grace alone, all right? As we keep rolling, we see grace alone, and then faith alone, Christ alone, and then glory to God alone. I think it's helpful to understand these five sayings as answers to five questions. This week, what is the authority of truth in our life? 
Is it what I think is right? Is it what the culture tells me? Is it what my pastor or my priest told me? Is it what I feel inside? What is the authority of truth? That's where we're going today. Week two, you're not going to want to miss that one, is how am I actually loved by God? Why would God love me? Week three is how am I actually saved? What does that look like? And, and, and what makes me right before God? Week four, Christ alone is this idea of do I even participate in this whole heaven afterlife thing at all? Like what gets me there? And then week five, we're going to wrap up the series with the most sweeping of all. What is the point of all this church, Jesus, God, Bible stuff anyway? So that's where we are heading. Second introductory question, where did these sayings come from? So all five of these sayings have their root in a period in church history in the 16th century called the Protestant Reformation, and there is no way that I'm going to try and summarize that in 35 minutes. So here's the cliff notes. The Protestant Reformation started with a man named Martin Luther when he started to read the Bible for himself. He opened God's word, and as he thoughtfully and carefully and prayerfully started to read God's word, this tension started swelling in his heart, and here it is. is what do I do when the church disagrees with the word of God? Because the church at the time was teaching and practicing things that are not consistent with the word of God. And so Luther and others really dove into the word and sought out truth for themselves, which today does not sound all that revolutionary, but at the time was tantamount to heresy. And so over the coming years, these five saying emerged as convictions for many people in the 16th century, not inventing something new, but actually recovering something very, very old. Now here at the North Canton Chapel, we have a lot of people who grew up in different faith traditions, different church traditions. Some of you grew up Baptist, some of you grew up Catholic, some of you grew up Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran or all over the map. And so right at the onset, we want to say that this series is not meant to vilify a particular denomination, but what we are going to do is we're going to clear the table and center all of our teachings on God's word alone. And so I want to be fair to you to let you know that's where we're going. So I think you can track with that. Last introductory question, and then we're going to get to the text. Why are these five sayings so important? I believe there's nothing more dangerous than a church that can't articulate why they believe what they believe. These five sayings are really deep theological pools. And as a church 500 years after the Reformation, you need to know these five things influence our preaching. They influence what songs we sing and worship. They influence how we think about things like baptism and communion and church leadership and all of that stuff. And so we're taking five weeks just prior to Easter to wade into these deep pools together. But I also think there's a more personal reason. Because whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades or you are a brand new follower to Jesus, when life drop kicks you in the face, spiritual sounding one-liners, and you guys know I love a good one-liner, and slick marketing, those don't help you out. We are created for depth. It's the difference between the kiddie pool and the ocean. And so without theologically rich depth, it's easy to drift off into a sea of like half-truths and deceptions. And some of you have seen that, haven't you? Some of you have lived it. 
And so I want to encourage you to think about these next five weeks, these five sayings as theological concrete, like the bedrock on which all belief should rest. And so if you're not sure what you believe or why, or if you're looking for a theologically rich, rooted starting point for your faith, this series is for you. So all that is the frame. Everybody good? All right, let's get to it. Sola number one. What is our authority for truth? Answer, scripture alone. Join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's point number one. The authority of scripture in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 16 and 17. You can follow along on the screens behind me. You can get there on your phone or in your hard copy of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16. Here we go. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we're jumping into the last half of this letter written by Paul to a young man named Timothy. Paul discipled Timothy personally. If they lived in 2020 North Canton, you'd probably see Paul and Timothy hanging out at Starbucks. They would know how each other took their coffee. They shared meals together. These guys were really close. But at this point, Paul's in jail for spreading the gospel. And so he wants to write a letter. It's actually one of the last letters that he would write to his young disciple named Timothy to extend his influence past the jail bars. Timothy was a young pastor. He's probably in his early 30s. And his world was a lot like ours. Materialism reigns supreme. There's gods on every billboard and truth is obscured. And so with the end of his life probably in view, wise Pastor Paul drops a theological truth bomb to this young man's life. And he says this, you want to know where truth lives, Timothy? Do you want to know where truth resides? It's in here. It's not out there. It's right here. It's God-breathed. God breathe. That's a really interesting word. It's the only time this shows up in the New Testament. It's a compound word for you grammar nerds out there. You know who you are. <clears throat> you take these two words and you smush them together. So there's like no air between them. It's God breathed. Your translation, or you may have memorized it in another translation that says a different word, inspired. All scripture is inspired, right? We say that word a lot. It sounds like this, like, Man, when she climbed to the top of the mountain, she was inspired by the view, right? Or he was inspired to write this love song because of his girlfriend. Or she was such an inspiring speaker, right? What do those words mean? They're, they're good, but they kind of fall short of what Paul has in mind here. So let's get at this. There are really four theories of inspiration. And all these theories are really important to understand if we're going to get God's personal connection with his word. And so I want to warn you, we're about to jump off into the deep end. So all you theology nerds are like going to go like happy, happy here for a second. So I'm going to invite you up to the edge of the diving board with me, and we're going to jump off together. You ready? You're like, tough. We're going there anyway. All right, here we go. All right. First theory of inspiration is called the intuition theory. It looks like this. And here's what it means. It means that the writers of scripture, like Moses, Paul, Peter, David, whoever, all these guys are just really intuitive guys. God made them really smart. And so the words of the Bible are really great spiritual sayings by really great writers. 
Now, here's the problem with that. (laughs) Unless God is personally connected to his word, there's really no difference between this book and a fortune cookie. This is just spiritual sayings. It's like Buddha or Plato or somebody else. It just sounds really, really good. Well-crafted sayings written by very spiritually intuitive people. Now, that should set off some red flags in some of your minds, so hold on to those flags for a second. Second theory of intuition is, or theory of inspiration is called the, in, or the illumination theory. Easy for you to say. The illumination theory. And here's how this one works. The illumination theory says that the Holy Spirit uses human writers and illuminates their natural abilities by putting thoughts in their heads. So these guys just become like literary geniuses. God doesn't guide them. He just puts thoughts in their heads and lets them take things from there. Okay, it's like what coffee does at crunch time at work. Just makes me more focused on the thing I was going to do anyway. So if we, fo- if we follow the illumination theory to its conclusion, there are a few problems. First, there are no guardrails. There's nothing in place to make sure that God put in what he wanted and excluded or prohibited what he didn't. But secondly, and here's the one that concerns me more, if the Holy Spirit is using those writers in that way, and I have the same Holy Spirit in my heart as a Christ follower, as any of you do as a Christ follower, then what's to say that my words are any different than theirs? Cults get started that way, right? So the the writers of Scripture, there is something different about their words than my words. My words are not on par with Scripture. And you're like, yeah, duh. Like, that's the point. (laughs) There is a difference. Third theory, the dictation theory. Now, this one swings the pendulum really hard the other way. Dictation theory says this, that the human writers are basically just passive channels through which the Holy Spirit wrote whatever he wanted to write. So think about them like mindless zombies, They're just writing and like, yes, okay. Here's the problem with that one. I think this one's really noble, the intention, because it seeks to preserve a high view of Scripture. But the tension with this one is it it doesn't recognize the individual styles that we see in Scripture. Paul wrote like a lawyer. Why? Because he was a lawyer. Peter writes like a fisherman. Why? Because he's a fisherman. David writes like a king and a warrior and a shepherd because he is those things. And so if scripture is our sole authority of truth, there has to be a doctrinal way by which we maintain a high view of scripture, but also allow for the writer's individual styles that we see. Fourth theory of inspiration. And just to let you know, This is where our staff sit. It is where every volunteer leader signs off on every year and every board member signs off on. It's called the verbal plenary inspiration. Put simply, God is absolutely sovereign over the entire process. Every word of the Bible is God's. And he oversees the process in such a way to allow for distinct cultures, thoughts, and personalities of the writers to show through. I like to imagine this one like the writer's sitting there and it says it's God breathed. And so God like exhales and like warms his heart and warms his mind. God exhales again and then his breath moves to their hands and then their thoughts. And and then eventually the quill or the pen's actually moving. And just like our very life is owing to the breath of God back in Genesis 1, God's work and his word are also sustained by his breath. There's nothing that happens that he is not sovereignly in control of. Make sense? Okay, now here's why 
all that matters. Here's why understanding God's personal connection to this book is so important. Because authority must be personal. Authority must be personal. Here's another way to think about that. You will only accept the authority of a truth source when you accept the character of the one bringing it. Authority must be personal. And so this one phrase at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, God's saying, you can trust my word because you can trust me. It's my word because I say it is. Now stop, because we have another problem. And the more philosophically inclined among you already caught it. You're going, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so you're telling me I can accept God's word as authoritative because it says it is? Like, that's circular reasoning, dude. That doesn't hold water. Back up. Nope, doesn't work. And here's my response. You are 100% right. And here's why I'm 100% okay with that. If I tell you that Mandy is my wife and I am her husband, we are married, 800 or so of you will hear me say that this morning in this room, and you have no proof. None of you have seen our marriage license, yet you believe me. Why? I would imagine a similar scenario if I said, I am Joseph and Karsten's dad. Right? You would probably believe me. You're acting on the belief that that is true, but none of you have seen their birth certificates. You're not demanding a DNA test, right? But you believe me. Why? Because authority must be personal. You believe me because you know me. You follow? Most of you perceive me to be a man of integrity, and so in those two examples, you have no reason to doubt me because you know me. The same is true with God. Authority must be personal. And so the first question that you've really got to wrestle with about this book is not do I recognize its authority over my life, but do I recognize God at all? Do I realize that he is high and holy and the creator, and I am a creature created? You see the difference? Proof is a terrible starting point. Worship is the starting point. Remember how Job ended, the book of Job? If you've read it or you know the story, Job, like chapter and chapter and chapter of Job just pouring out his sufferings and his friends join in on the pity party, right? And it's just like, God, what is going on here? What is happening? And like he's pushing to God to give him a reason. How does the book end up? Here's what God says. Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When God's talking like that, he's sarcastically saying, one of my favorite attributes of God, he's basically saying, who do you think you are? Here's the point. We are not created to reason God into existence. We are created to worship God because of his existence. It's true in my life, and it's true in the life of everybody in this room. When I question God's authority, I'm really questioning God's sovereignty. And when I question God's sovereignty, I'm ultimately questioning his goodness. And whenever I question God's goodness, I'm affirming my own pride 
It's Adam and Eve all over again. We are not created to reason God into existence. We are created to worship him because of his existence. And all of his authority must be personal. Now, I want to be careful before we move on to the next point. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that faith means checking your brain at the door. Okay? I'm not saying don't pursue logic, don't pursue reason, because I believe that God gave us a brain and he wants us to use it, and I believe that Christianity, biblically defined, is a reasonable faith. In fact, I believe it's the only reasonable faith. But here's the sticking point. My reason, like every other part of Brandon Marshall, is subject to sin and must be redeemed before it's any good. And so I know we're seven words in, but here's the gospel. Do you recognize that you have broken God's law and broken his heart? Do you recognize the fact that he has given you provision in the name of Jesus Christ to restore the broken things? And have you confessed in your mind that he is your savior and nothing else is going to fix that relationship and restore everything that's broken inside of you? If you haven't gotten to that point, this book is just a stack of fanciful pages and fairy tales. I know that's hitting hard right out of the gate. But it's a question of authority, and the authority must be personal. So do you know him? It's the first point, the authority of Scripture in my life. Second point, now Paul moves from the authority of Scripture in my life to the place of Scripture in my life. And we're going to go right back to 2 Timothy 3 and the second half of verse 16. Here we go. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And there it is. Those are the four functions of this book in my life. Because God doesn't want you just to recognize this as authoritative. He wants you to use it. This needs to occupy a place in your life. And so these four functions, did you see them? Here we go. Teaching, number one. Teaching. God gave us his word so that we can learn from it. But here's the nuance. It's not learning a what, it's learning a who. Not like Dr. Seuss who, different kind of who. If I asked you to tell me about your spouse, if I asked you to tell me about your best friend, you would not give me their blood type nor their social security number. You would tell me about them. You would give me character depth. You would tell me what they're like, what they believe, how they treat you. It's the same thing with God. What do I mean by depth? Depth is not information, like how many binders of discipleship blanks you have filled in and sitting on your shelf. Doesn't matter. Depth is not involvement. Not how many 42 Bible studies do you have going on in your life right now? Nope. That's not what we're talking about. Depth is truth applied to my life, taking a very deep truth about God, about how, what he expects from me, and taking my life and going, how does this match this? That's depth. Right? And that's what God wants us to see when we come under his word for teaching. Here's a quick guardrail for you. Don't get sucked into learning something that you can't apply. And churches do this stuff all the time, right? We learn all kinds of facts about God that are interesting, but people are just as cold, just as selfish, just as prideful, just as hateful, just as merciless, and just as dead as they were when they came in. It's why the church is seen as irrelevant, and it's why Christians are seen as hypocrites. Lots of people learn about the word, so they don't have to submit to the word. I know that's really harsh, but it's true. 
So learn Jesus when you look at this thing. Second function, reproof. Reproof. We got teaching. We also know that it's profitable or it's useful for reproof. This is showing me what's wrong in me. This means seeing myself rightly, and it's the stuff that we hate. It's the mirror. And we look in the mirror and go, And so I'm going to invite my favorite author to talk about this, C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. He says that reproof is like turning on the lights in your cellar and finding rats down there. And most of us, what do we do? Like when we turn on the lights in the cellar, we see rats, we're like, mm, shut off the light, hurry back up the stairs, slam the door. Here's the problem. The light didn't put the rats down there. The rats were down there all the time. The light just alerted me to the fact that I have cellar problems. You follow me? While the light is uncomfortable, we shouldn't be afraid of it. We were created to live in the light, uncomfortable though it may be at first. And so if I've got rats in the cellar, the question is, do I even want to see them? Because they're there. I've got them, and you've got them. Do you even want to see them? Because it's a whole lot easier to pretend that they're not there, or they're not a big deal, or they're not hurting anybody. So, right? But here's the bright side. God is wise enough to show you that you've got rats in the cellar of your heart, but he's also loving enough to show you how to deal with it. Third function of the word in the life of a believer, correcting. It's useful for correcting. Now, when you hear this, it might bring to images like like hand slapping or like ruler spanking or like sitting in the corner. Familiar with those? And so that's part of what's in view here, but it's much richer than that. Here's what I mean, correcting. So um, for Christmas this year, Mandy got a three-use massage Groupon. Man, my mom bought it for her, and uh, it was really cool. But this last Friday, she couldn't use one of them, and so she sent me. And I am not like a massage guy. Like, I'm good with fist bumps. I'm good with hugs. Like, my back hurts. I'm just sleeping in the recliner. I'll be fine. But I go, because, like, it's cool, right? I go, and I GPS the, and I get in the car, and I arrive, and I'm there at a salon. And I'm like, sweet, this is just awesome, right? So I go in the door, and like 15 women who like are getting their hair done and their nails and their eyebrows or whatever, they're like, and I'm like, "Ah, I am here to see Tina. And I had no idea what to do. And so um, you laugh, I'm serious. This is like 48 hours old. You're letting me cleanse all my attention right now, so thank you. So we go back to, the, like, the little room, and you know how this goes, right? Like, there's salt rocks, and there's oil diffusing, and then, like, there's Enya playing. And then I lay down on, like, the donut pillow, and she's, like, working these things in my back. And I'm like, oh, God, they're so bad. And then I'm, like, trying to make small talk with her while she's, like, working on me. And, like, my only cultural protocol for this is the barbershop, which is clearly different than <laughs> this place. And then, like, 45 minutes later, I stand up, the moment of truth, and I go, oh, I actually feel really good. Like I'm standing, I feel like a full inch and a half taller. Like my back's not like this and like all attention's gone. Well, I hate to break it to you. If you've been in that situation, you know. It's not because of your own efforts. It's not because of Enya and salt rocks. It's because the muscles got put back where they were supposed to go. That's correcting. This word, correcting, this old Greek word, it means restoring something to an upright state. It's a medical term that was used to talk about when a broken back was put back together. How awesome is that? 
Here's the point, though. Our souls are way out of line, aren't they? We do bad things to the deep places in us, and those deep places need to be corrected. And you want to know something crazy simple? The Word of God always corrects us in the same way. It always points us to Jesus. If you're reading it right, the Word of God is never going to go to tell you to work harder. It's going to go, let Jesus fix this thing that's deep in you. But keeps going. Fourth function in God's word is training in righteousness. I love that phrase, training in righteousness, because it gets to the idea that there is a big difference between resting in the grace that is mine because of Christ and then living life in light of that grace. You see the difference? Yes, we are pronounced righteous. It is imputed righteousness because of the cross. You are all righteous if you acknowledge your sinful state before God and cling to Christ. But that's not the end. That's the starting line. And I love this phrase because it comes so close to what I believe the church needs today. Real Christians who look at grace not as the end game, but as the starting point of living a life that matters. This is what Jesus meant in John 10.10, 10, where he says, I've come that you might have life, but life more abundant, bigger, <laughs> Not more stuff, but life as it was intended. So why don't we want this? In my experience, a couple reasons. One, we could just be lazy. Training takes work, and I don't want to work that hard. Two, we could just be prideful. Sounds like this, like, oh, I, I'm way beyond basics. I want depth. Be quiet. That's your pride talking. You never get beyond basics. Three, we could just be fearful. Because the word of God is going to uncover stuff in my life that I don't want to see. But whether we're lazy, prideful, or fearful, here's the thing. Everybody else can see it but you. Who do you think you're fooling? Everybody else can see your self-righteousness. Everybody else can see your fake Christianity, like this cultural thing that you just kind of cling to. Everybody else can see your double life. Who are you kidding? And why are you working so hard to project an image of this like perfect Christian life when you could take all of that effort and actually use it to get right with Jesus? That's weird. I'm just going to leave that there, though, because that's a tender one. So let's draw all four of these ideas together, okay? Teaching, reproof, correcting, and training. All four of those functions represent the place of Scripture in my life. So that's what you can expect when you open this thing up and use it well. But now, here's where things get really good, because up until now, all this has been a bit heady, and uh, I've enjoyed it because I'm a nerd, but we got to land the plane, <laughs> because here's the question, how does this doctrine of scripture alone actually make any difference in my life outside of all the theory, because Monday is coming, and people live over there, <laughs> And life happens, right? And so we got to deal with that thing because that's where stuff actually matters. Enter verse 17. Here we go. The purpose of Scripture in your life. The purpose of Scripture in your life. Let's go back to verse 16 just to warm up. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that... The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, right off the bat, little bells should be going off in your head because whenever Paul starts a sentence with that or a phrase, he's tipping his hand and he's going, here is the larger vision, the larger purpose behind everything that I just said. 
There's a cause and effect relationship here that Paul wants us to see, and so we don't want to miss it. The reason that Scripture is God-breathed, point one. The reason that Scripture is profitable, point two, is for one unavoidable, crystal clear, leap off the page reason, your personal holiness. Here's what I want you to hear. You will never get God's best for you until you get God's word in you. So let's back up a bit. Let me come back to this text, but let's reflect. Everybody in this room has something in common. You all want something for your life, right? You all want something for your life. It could be something quantifiable and measurable, like, man, I want a better paying job. I want, I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to adopt kids. I want to engage in mission opportunities. I want to serve my neighbors. Like, or it could be something immeasurable, like, dang, I just want peace. I just want contentment. I want to love my spouse more. I want to learn to crave the things of God more. Everybody in this room wants something. We've all got these dreams and these hopes and these visions and these burdens. Like, we just came out of Nehemiah. And I've had so many conversations in the last couple of weeks of people going, all right, I'm burdened. What do I do? Like, I got a vision for, like, God's glory coming to my work or, or to my office or to my home or to my school. What do I do about it? You're like, I'm in. What do I do next? Here's the starting point. What this verse means is that all those dreams, all those, ver- all those visions, all those burdens don't matter one bit unless you are grounded in the word and the word alone. First, foremost, and ultimately, why? You will never get God's best for you until you get God's word in you. So let's drop down scary close for a minute. God is writing the story of your life and he doesn't waste one word. All those past scenes and hurts and regrets and pains, all those orphaned thoughts and lost emotions that don't mean a thing, they seem that way, they matter. All those dreams and hopes for the future, everything that you would pray for, you'd love to see this happen in your life. God wants you to take all of that and see it through the lens of his word and his word alone. Why? Why alone? Because we live in a fake news world of pseudo-authorities. Man, if you've got a blog and an opinion, you've got a corner on truth. And here's God saying, I want to give you something better. You want to be complete? You want to be equipped for everything that he has for you? It's right here. This, this is how I want you to see me. This is how I want you to see yourself. This is how I want you to see your world. And so if you're here and you've got a dream and a hope and a prayer that's out in front of you, hear me. What this verse is saying loud and clear is there is nothing that God has prepared for you ahead for which his word alone will not equip you. There is nothing that God has prepared for you for which his word alone will not equip you. And a lost world without a truth source needs the person that you will become when you get in this thing and get formed by it. You know what the biggest casualty of a life spent without a constant deep devotion to the word is? It's not like shame. It's not like you don't get to play church with everybody, right? The biggest casualty of a life spent without a deep devotion to the word is you actually rob the world of the person that you are supposed to become. 
And that's a rebuke. And I turn it on myself too. Don't let your inattentiveness to the word rob the world of the person that God wants to make you. Paul told Timothy, he says, as God breathed, it's profitable. Why? Because it makes you complete. Thoroughly equipped. Nothing missing. The world does not need smart Christians. They are boring. The world does not need fake Christians who just play church. They're terrible. The world does not need Christians who can recite chapter and verse but are cold and dead inside. The world needs Christians who are richly, deeply, and consistently formed by the word, who have gotten really comfortable saying like teaching. Oh gosh, there's so many things I don't know about Jesus, but I want to see him better. Like reproof. Oh, there's so many places where my life doesn't line up with my my savior and I want to look more like him. Correcting like God, get all that dirt out of me and like correct me where I'm supposed to be and then training. God, make me ready for everything that you have for me. And so here's the potentially unsettling question. And it's where I've got to drive this bus. (laughs) What if God has some great purpose for your life but he's keeping it from you because you are unwilling to be formed by his word. What if those unnamed good works that Paul tells Timothy about are out there waiting for you, but in his sovereign wisdom, God won't let you have them yet because you can't handle it? Let's grow up. Stop playing church. Eat this book. Get your life saturated by this thing and see yourself through it. Let this be the sole authority for truth in your life. You'll never get God's best for you until you get God's word in you. Hear me, spiritual formation always trumps spiritual participation. Say that again because that's like a bumper sticker waiting to happen. Make that one, please, and then give me one. Spiritual formation always trumps spiritual participation. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how often you went to confession. I don't care how many Bible studies you're involved with. Until you are well acquainted with the school of the Spirit and the loving discipline of reproof and the surgical skill of correction and this like soul-wrenching thing called training and righteousness, you will never get what God wants for you. But guys, here's the best part. All of this is yours for free anytime you want it. You probably got one, four, five, 12 laying at home. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. I'll help you, right? But you can read this thing for yourself. You don't need a Bible college degree. You don't need Greek and Hebrew. You don't need a commentary set. What you need is a hunger and a belief that this is the only thing that you need for a truth source in this world. Here's what that sounds like. This last week, I sat with a man in my office, and here's what he said. He said, <laughs> he says, I used to throw away my rent money on all kinds of stuff. He says, I used to drink like a fish. Now, these are his words, and he says, And now I love Jesus, I crave his word, and I have a thirst I can't quench. And they go, now that is powerful. And it's really simple, and it's world-changing. There are people like that everywhere. 
Right? They're not influential, they're not big names, but they're people who are becoming complete and equipped for every good work because they recognize the purpose of the word in their life. So we're going to wrap up in a second. I want to give you a few tips. I'm going to go way high again. <laughs> to give, just to give you a meaningful time in God's word. Okay? A couple points of application, and then we'll sing and we'll wrap up. First, if you want to have a meaningful time in God's word, have a set time and place. <laughs> For me, it's my recliner. It's 6 a.m. or earlier. I got my Bible and my cup of coffee. Maybe those are in order of importance. Maybe not. I'll let you conclude. <clears throat> But we are hardwired for habit, and so have a set time and place where you do it. It doesn't have to be the morning. It doesn't always happen for me in the morning because stuff happens, right? But we're hardwired for habit. So find a set time and place where you meet with God around his word. Second little tip, get alone. Get alone. If you've been here for 10 minutes, you know we're really big on community. We have ABFs and MCs and men's and women's Bible studies. Like, we believe in community. But I am never more directly convicted and I am never more deeply comforted than when I am with my God alone. Super scary. Because I read what Paul writes and he says, consider others more better than yourself. And all I can think of is like how, how far short I fall as a husband and as a father, because I put my needs before my wife and my kids all the time because I'm selfish. You don't get that in a group context. You get that when it's just you and the spirit. So get alone. Third tip, start small. I'm amazed, like here we are in March, right? And I'm amazed every January. People are like, all right, this is the year. I'm reading the Bible like every month, cover to cover, 12 times this year. I'm like, oh, cool, have fun with that, right? And so maybe if that's you, you're on track, like keep going, Monks, way to go. <laughs> the truth is, like, it doesn't happen that way, okay? So if you are brand new to studying or reading God's word, read something small first, okay? Get realistic. Read the Gospel of Mark. You can read about an hour and a half. It paints the portrait of Jesus in a really succinct way. Or read Ephesians. It's a great book. It's my favorite book by the Apostle Paul. Read Ephesians. Start small. Fourth tip. Get a Bible that you enjoy reading, I remember when I first started reading the Bible on my own, and I'm like, I, I think this is like a dead language, because it was like, at that point, it's like, you know, 400 years old. It's like, I don't understand this thing. So if you're looking for a good Bible translation or a Bible that you would like to get, um, this isn't a commercial, we don't get a kickback, I would recommend the ESV Study Bible, okay? It's a little bit of an investment, but it's the English Standard Version, Really easy to read. It's got tons of study helps in there for the stuff that you may not get. Um, but it's really easy to read, and it's a good one. I promise you it's going to be a more enjoyable read than um, maybe the one that you pulled off of the back of your bookshelf, okay? And if you don't know where to start, like, come talk to me. I'll gladly help you find one. So, Scripture alone. What is my source for truth? Scripture alone. I lied. I got one more point of application, and then we'll be done. So next week, I said we're looking at the second question. Why would God love me? Why would God love me? Don't miss that. It's such a great question. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible, go home and read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Kind of prepare for next week. Get a little ahead of it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And as you read, ask yourself two questions I would consider. One, what is God saying to me? And two, what am I going to do about it? What's God saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? And just to hit it again, if you don't know Jesus, 
if you've not made him yours. If today you are sitting in darkness and you go, man, I would love light, please come talk to me. Talk to the person that you came with. I do not want you to miss out on what this is for you. This is the almighty God, creator of the heavens and earth, saying, here. And I need you to know his son. So with that, let me pray. Father God, we praise you for your sovereignty. Praise you for your goodness, for your care for us. That over thousands of years, over languages and continents, there was nothing that stopped you from communicating your word through human authors to a human audience so that we could understand what you have to say, what you're like, what you want for us, what you want us to know about you, why you are worthy of worship, and how we can have hope for the future. So in your sovereignty, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. You are sovereign, you are holy, and you are good. So Father, as much as we say thank you for your written word, we also say thank you for your incarnate word, Jesus, who stepped into this world that he created to set us free and to give us hope. And Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.